Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, we dig deep into our archives for one of the most important discussions Michael has ever taken part in. In his words, it was one of the highlights of his life. Together, let's go to Los Angeles. The year is 2008, and in a moment we'll be privileged to listen to Michael's discussion with Dr. Dallas Willard, who for several decades taught philosophy at the University of Southern California and was the author of several books, including The Spirit of the Disciplines, Hearing God, and The Divine Conspiracy. Dr. Willard passed into glory at 77 years old in May of 2013. Now, in this conversation, he and Michael will discuss spiritual formation, having an interactive relationship with God, the idea that solitude is the most radical of the disciplines, and so much more. Now, you're going to want to listen intently to this conversation, even playing it over again so you don't miss anything. Now, before we jump into this conversation, I want to take this opportunity to congratulate Wrath Clayton One and Atlas Freak, as they are the winners of a copy of Andrew Bauman's book, The Sexually Healthy Man, who was our guest on last week's podcast. Thank you for your reviews on Apple Podcast, and please send an email to info at restoringthesoul.com with your current address, and we'll be sure to get a book right out to you. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. As I think about the the breadth of your your Christian books, it seems like it's all focused on uh, describing to people the, the context, the need for, and the methodology for spiritual transformation. I'm curious, in your own life and in your own vocation, what's been the impetus and the passion behind that theme through all those books? Well... Very simply, it's what is called the Great Commission, which as a child struck me and for some reason has settled in my mind and my body and has been the test and guide of 
I guess most everything that I tried to do as a minister, as a writer, and um, the realization as a young Baptist minister that it wasn't being done. The Great, the Great Commission. Right, sort of. I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't being done. I wasn't doing it. Okay. And uh, then the growing realization of what that meant and why that was that way and the attempt to do something about it, I think has it's all been, always been in the back of my mind that that's what we ought to do. Mm-hmm. And um, the last phrase is what I call the great omission from the Great Commission, namely teach them to do everything that I've said. Hmm. Was that the impetus behind your book, The Great Omission? Well, you know, that book is a sort of an after, it's sort of like the phosphorus on the, the porpoise's tail. <laughs> it's um, someone thought that I ought to pull together a lot of articles and speeches and things that I'd given. And that seemed to be the center of much of that without planning it or anything. It's, okay. But one of the bylines on the on the back of that book is what the church forgot to teach you, uh-huh. and so the, it, it seems as if, um, from your perspective, and I would agree with you that we fulfilled the first part of the Great Commission, uh, and maybe the second part, beginning processes of discipleship, but but not really teaching people to walk in that mm-hmm. way. Well, I uh, in, when I published a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, I think in the eighties, sometime. I made the statement in there that I do not know of a single church or parachurch group that had a concrete plan for teaching the people under their influence to do the things that Jesus said. And I, I, that, that still stands. Today I, that's been your experience? Well, I challenge people to think about it, and so far I haven't had anyone who comes forward and says, yes, here's our plan, here's how we do it, and here's the outcome. So we have a, a system that is not built around that. And then why and what to do about it is mainly That's the what question. I myself talking about. It ties in very closely with what I do um, as a philosopher, because actually that pr- general problem, if you wish, call it character formation, is one of the most ancient and du- enduring problems of philosophy up to the present century, where philosophy has been professionalized and God only knows possibly what it's about, but up until well into the 20th century, we still thought that's. Philosophers should have some insight into what is good and what is right and how to get there. Mm-hmm. When you speak of uh, professionalized philosophy, are you speaking of the clinical philosophers where people I've heard of can, uh, can go to a philosopher in the same way that they'd go to a psychotherapist? Well, actually, that's very recent. That has developed in just the last few years, okay. partly out of a sense on the part of some philosophers that philosophy has no justification for its existence at all, as it is now done. <laughs> and, but see, classically, that's a reversion to the classical understanding of the philosopher. And uh, 
gets uh, some interesting discussion going. Since we're speaking about your career as a philosopher, what's it what's it like to be uh, an unapologetic and outspoken Christian at a secular university such as USC? Well, I think the short answer to that is if you do your job and do it well, there's no problem. And uh, because people don't, I mean, all sorts of crazy things are believed in universities. <laughs> Apparently you're doing your job by all accounts very well. Well, that's, really, that is, the, and, and uh, that's the way I've approached it. I never intended to become a philosopher. I intended to be a pastor or evangelist or something of that sort. What led you to pursue the doctorate in philosophy? I felt that I was unendurably ignorant about God and the soul. And by the time I realized that, I realized also that philosophers spend more time on those topics than anyone. Fascinating. Even theologians. Hmm. And so I decided to do some graduate work in philosophy went to the University of Wisconsin. I didn't intend to take a degree. I intended to return to the ministry in some form. But one thing led to another, and I was very much involved in ministry while I was there. And they asked me to stay on and teach there after I finished. Um, it's just, a, I, you know, it's just the Lord led me, that's all. Yeah. And I had no, I didn't have enough sense to know what was happening. You also but at spent one some point... He's, I was deliberating about this the year after I had finished my doctorate and was teaching there. The Lord said to me, well, if you stay in the church, the universities will be closed to you. If you go into the university, the churches will be open to you. Interesting. And again, I, I didn't particularly like that idea. But hmm. Share with me about this idea you wrote about in The Divine Conspiracy, and you've, you've even touched on it at this conference, about our weakened understanding of the gospel and what the, what the biblical idea of the gospel is. The gospel from beginning to end of the Bible is that God is in charge and that we can trust him. And uh, this becomes much clearer, of course, as Jesus comes and makes clear what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like and that everyone is welcome and so on. But that's the basic, that's the gospel that was preached beforehand, which Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Uh, so there is one gospel, but uh, of course it has to be made available and made available in a way of understanding. Now, what has happened is that in recent decades, not all that long, because really uh, time for many, many decades after the Protestant Reformation, people had a pretty good understanding of faith. But then it came to mean, especially after the modernist, liberal, fundamentalist controversy, it came to mean simply believing the right things. And that came to mean giving assent or professing them. And that's and the reduced gospel. That's the reduced gospel. And mm -hmm. it, the thing is, you can do that without trusting Christ and without entering the kingdom of God. Mm. So believing the right things becomes, in fact, a kind of work of righteousness that you do. Mm. And for some reason, God likes that. And he'll let you into heaven when you die. 
what a paradox that believing the right things is almost the ultimate work. Yes. Yeah. But that it, it enters, and then many of the things you hear discussed in the group are issues of self-righteousness in relation to that system of believing the right things. Huh. And, um, of course, the older churches, uh, they put it in terms of receiving the sacraments. and But they, that still left the individual free to more or less lead their life on their own. As yeah. they, they just take care of it that way. You've alluded to some of these reduced Gospels that are certainly an aspect of the Gospel, of a, a social Gospel or a Gospel that's focused on getting into heaven. Right. Um, but but this broader idea is you're referring to as the kingdom of God and life with God. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, this is what we call, uh, without thinking sometimes, a personal relationship to God or to Christ. Now, a personal relationship is one where there is ongoing fellowship, influence, help, benefit, and so on, communication. And that is what Jesus calls eternal life when he says eternal life in John 17:3, is knowledge of you, the only true God, and of Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, of course, many people take that, well, that means getting all your doctrines right. So you believe the right things about God and about Christ, and then you have eternal life, and eternal life is what you get after you die. But as I mentioned, the knowledge biblically always refers to interactive relationship. And that is what is actually being talked about in that passage on eternal life. It is interactive relationship. And then, of course, you see the whole point of God's work is presence, and you see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the with God life, as I call it, uh, is a life uh, that is uh, captured in the, uh, in the phrase Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, uh, that's, what, that's the real substance of our relationship to God, not hiding and so on, because if you're hiding, um, from others or from God, well, then that's not good for interactive relationships. Right, right. <laughs> the whole idea of interactive relationship um, takes it takes it about the here and now, life now, Absolutely. walking with God now, that's and right. that impacting my life, as opposed to just in the sweets by and by. Yes, and you know what we've had is a gospel that basically says, if you accept the fact that Jesus died in your place, then you can get on with your life, and you will go to heaven when you die. And then whatever needs to be fixed will be fixed. This just occurred to me, but um, it strikes me that, that most Christians underestimate what's available in a life with God. Well, that is one of the most heartbreaking things about this whole situation. They basically decide to stay, go on their own, work, work out things the best they can. And like... Uh, uh, the pastor who goes to visit the man in the hospital and afterwards talks to his wife and says, well, let's pray. And she says, oh, is it that bad? Mm. You know, like prayer is something that you only do in these extreme moments and not something you do because it's a good thing to do all the time. Yes. You know? And this is obviously a thematic of your book, Spirit of the Disciplines, but that, that transformation that occurs and what is available in a life with God happens over a long journey. 
or frequently a long journey and not overnight. Well, that's right. It always takes time. Now, here's, the, here's, here's an issue, though, because if you're well taught, it doesn't take as long. The situation now is people are not taught this, and so uh, odd person here and there will pick up something like Brother Lawrence's practice in the presence of God or something, and that will strike them, and then they will try to think about doing that. But our problem today is that we don't have good instruction in the spiritual life. We just don't. Uh, and we don't think about salvation as a life. Uh, so that's where the teaching comes in. See, in times past now, and not just in the early church, but for example, uh, the Franciscan movement in its early days, the Quakers in their early days, the Wesleyans and so on. You always have to say their early days because that's the way it works. Um, you know, it didn't take those people long. It was because uh, a small group of people had started something that had tremendous power because God was with them, tangibly, manifestly with them. And then that would draw others in. And in that context, you can teach people much better. See, now, if you teach spiritual formation now, you are teaching against an incredibly powerful default system of Christianity that says it has nothing to do with that. Hmm. It's interesting, uh, Dallas, that even as you're speaking about teaching people, and I'm, I'm a, a part-time uh, seminary professor, mm -hmm. and I encounter this all the time, as, even as you speak of teaching, right away my mind goes to the cognitive aspect of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But there again, you're defining knowledge as interactive relationship. Right. And so you're talking about instructing and teaching people and modeling interactive relationship mm -hmm. with God and not just filling their heads with uh, an idea, a book, right. e even scripture, which is a good thing. Can, can you talk about what that modeling and teaching of interactive relationship might look like? Well, what you do is you teach them, and you teach what it means, and you teach some practicalities around it, and then you set them to do it. Like, for example, I mean, a simple illustration is bless those who curse you. Jesus said to do that. How do you do it? Well, you're going to need to teach people what they are because they have no idea what it is, to tell you the truth. Uh, they don't identify the circumstances in life in which it would be relevant. Uh, so what you do is you teach them, why don't you tell them things like, now you bless someone when you explicitly invoke the presence of God for their good. Hmm. Right? So, okay. Uh, now, when do you do that? Now, then you have to help them identify circumstances because actually in most of our homes you have people cursing one another. In most of our Christian homes, uh, you certainly, if you drive a car, you have plenty of opportunities to practice, <laughs> <laughs> and so on. So actually, you do. You have to teach people now. Okay, this is something we're going to do. What kind of circumstance would it be where you're going to do this? And then you have to teach them how to identify when this is happening, so you won't just whoosh cursing back at them right right and and you have to give them some training in how to observe circumstances see what is coming uh, and then you have to let them grow to the point where they actually have blessing in them because blessing isn't like a faucet you can turn on here and there it's something about a person 
And then you send them out and you say, now this week we're going to identify cases where we have people cursing. Hmm. So now you come back next week and we'll talk about them. Were you possibly inclined to curse someone? <laughs> what I like about what you're saying is instead of just saying go love people, you're bringing it down to the very, very concrete that's, level. That's right. And we can teach people to do this. Yeah. And you won't, it won't take you three or four weeks with a, with a group of people that have decided that they're going to do what Jesus said to the point that they come to realize how much better it is to bless people who curse you than to curse them hmm. or to withdraw and become cold and isolated. Hmm. And then they're really into it. And they know how good it is. Hmm. And that's, of course, the turning point for all of the commands of Jesus is where you realize everything he said, you're so much better off if you do it. <laughs> hmm. His life, his ways. That's right. And and then, of course, you have to help. Of course, grace, you can't do this on your own, but grace will be there. You need the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's waiting on us. We're not waiting on him. So the, the my phrase for that is that you have to have well-directed action. And that includes spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. Like we, for most people today, they just need to slow down. If you don't slow down, you will not be able to recognize what's going on around you. And you will always be, you'll be like Peter, you will have already done the wrong thing before you had time to think about it, even mm-hmm. though someone told you you were going to do it ahead of time. Yeah. And That's you mentioned- why Jesus, watch what Jesus was teaching him by telling him ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. Because Jesus was always teaching them and listening to them say, oh, no, I won't do it. And then they did it. And now then they get to think about who they are. <laughs> wow. I never thought of that that, that way. Um, it, it's almost as if today uh, you referred, I think it was you earlier that used the word distraction. Yeah. Um, that, that the spirit of the age is really that of distraction, distraction. and drivenness and busyness. Mm-hmm. How do we begin to stem the tide, to turn the tide of that distraction and busyness in our lives? Um, well... Given everything else, that's very difficult because we don't have much in the way of a point of reference because if you go to church, you're just probably going to get more distractions. And there'll be more things to do and more this, that, and the other. And uh, So I think that we start out by setting an example. And that would mean, among other things, that when we're with people, we're not distracted. We listen to them. We don't rush down the line. We give time. We have to set a pattern. And then I think that we can teach about it and uh, get some groups, probably not Sunday morning, but have some meetings where, for example, you may have a period of silence. And you can talk talk to people about how to experience these things. And uh, solitude and silence are really basic with reference to this issue that you're talking about. Because it really, it really does break your distraction. Uh, if you can, uh, Pascal has this interesting little statement where he says, all the troubles of the world, of course it's an exaggeration, uh, all the troubles of the world come from the fact that people cannot go in a room and sit down and be quiet. 
And, and he's talking, actually, he's talking about how distraction is fundamental to human existence as we know it. And, of course, that's true. But why, why do we want to be distracted? It's because we don't find our character and our fate to be pleasing. We don't find our lives to be good. So we need to be distracted. And his discussion of distra distra distraction in life in the Pensees, or thoughts, uh, one of his main books, is just invaluable. Of course, he was a, a profound Christian man with a profound <laughs> Christian sister. <laughs> and so he, he experienced what he was talking about. Basically, we just have to lead people by our example and teaching into a different form of life, a different way of living. Get the Bluetooth out of their ear and the uh, uh, telephone off their belt and go sit down somewhere and be quiet and look up to God. And it, it sounds like that's obviously uh, a set of choices you've made in your own life. Yes. Uh, well, over a period of time I did. I backed my way into it. I, I didn't have any teaching on my own. I, I came to know the power of silence and solitude because as a minister I wanted to be able to make converts. And I believe that by reading that making converts depended upon a lot of praying. And then I found that you could pray. Uh, I found a little room in a Sunday school building that had these little chairs that are six feet, six inches tall, you know. <laughs> and no one was in there for the whole week. And so I found I could go in there and spend... And then I began to figure out that a lot of the effect was coming because of solitude and silence. Was that uncomfortable for you at first? No, it, it wasn't because I didn't know what it was doing. Okay. See, that, I'm, the Lord was merciful to me in so many ways because at that point, if someone had said, well, you need to practice solitude and silence, I'd have said, well, that sounds like a, like a bunch of monkery to me. I don't, <laughs> I'm a Baptist, man. I ain't going to do that. <laughs> You've said that solitude is the most radical of the disciplines. Yeah. Why, why is it the most radical? It breaks the hold of the world over you. And it puts in abeyance all of the things that pull you and distract you and divert you and compliment you and things like I am important because I'm busy and so forth. They, they go into suspension. Solitude is basically where you go alone and do nothing. Where should someone start if they want to develop a life of solitude? Well, it, this comes down to practicalities. I think the best thing is to, with all disciplines, you don't want to be heroic. You want to go easy. And I would recommend if you have a room that is quiet and comfortable, just try going in and sitting in a chair for a couple of hours and be silent. Starting with a couple of hours? Yeah. See how it does. Don't start with three days. Uh -huh. um, now, actually, there are some places that are set up where if you go for a weekend retreat, uh, they know how to deal with you. And they give you an opportunity to participate in the community or eat with the folks or not. And they look out after you. And that's important because, you know, when... Uh, when er, uh, hermetic uh, monasticism started in Egypt and Syria, a lot of people just died. They went crazy. And so uh, Pacomius is the one who said, <laughs> we have to learn how to be alone together. Hmm. 
And so that's where Cenobitic mon monasticism was basically, they each had their little dwelling place, but they could check on one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need help going into this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people do go crazy on it, frankly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why we need community and we need to practice a range of disciplines, not just one or two of them. We don't go crazy on fasting or crazy on solitude or whatever. But we also worship and we have fellowship. We study. We serve. Mm -hmm. And those, those are good things, but they're also disciplines and they help us keep our sanity. Mm -hmm. And sanity is one condition of holiness. Say more about that. <laughs> that intrigues me. I'm, I'm also a counselor, so I'm really intrigued by that. Well, holiness is a kind of overall health under God. That's, that's a basic meaning, as you probably know, is that uh, it is uh, to be holy is to be set apart unto God. So now when we do that, we take our whole life with us. And sanity does mean, among other things, that we just um, have a, a, a just regard of everything that we are concerned with, our family, our body, uh, our health, and as well as God and the angels and the Word of God and, and uh, works of power and character transformation, all of that's you never, there, there was a lot of wisdom in the old guys and gals who went into the desert. Uh, for example, one thing was they would always break a fast if someone came to visit them. Hmm. So this whole relationship is yeah, more important absolutely than... right. That, you know, you can always fast again, but here comes this person now. You not only prepare food for them, but you eat with them. And that's a that's a very healthy kind of thing. Benedictines are uh, are perhaps most famous for their work. They work in the fields. They they serve one another. And work is a very important part of a holy life. So uh, <clears throat> you're not saying this, but I'm hearing that uh, there's there's a relationship, and um, almost as if wholeness and holiness are synonymous. Well, holiness in the sense of being separated unto God inevitably makes you whole with a W. Would it also be true to say that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to be holy without being whole? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, if you're I just living in your brokenness. I think it is. Okay. Yes, I think that's true. And so we have to have an eye to wholeness. What yeah. is wholeness? That's a word that's thrown around a it, lot. Yeah, it means that all of the aspects of the self function harmoniously together to provide a life of a good person doing good under God. So body, soul, mind, spirit, yeah, all of those different parts. Right. Okay. And of course, probably no one achieves perfect holiness it's a matter of approximating it. But you can, right. you can easily watch people who get off balance and go nuts. And that's so common. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we see it, we talk about it in the cults, but actually the seeds of it are in many of our churches. Mm -hmm. So going in one direction over the other. Well, and omitting what is essential. You know, um, taking some 
a powerful manifestation of something and focusing it all on that. Okay. And then and then neglecting other parts, and that nearly always leads to some sort of malfeasance with money or sex or power or something of that sort. Mm. You see that over and over, and it's really tragic. Mm. But it's because life is out of balance. Mm. I want to ask a question that is uh, intentionally very, very broad, uh, but it kind of seems to flow from what we've been talking about. Uh, again, all of your writings have focused on the transformational aspect of being a follower of Jesus as opposed to just a convert who is assured of heavenly salvation. How do people change? How do people... Uh, what's your what's your synopsis of how people go from entering a life with Jesus to being transformed? Well, this is where the them thing comes in. The okay. attempts to capture V-I-M. the process. The vision is the V, vision of what is real and what is good. Um, Intention is the resolve to realize the vision. And it involves, of course, decision. But if you don't have the vision right, your decision and intention will be wavering and vacillating, and it won't have its proper effect. What we really have in, in most uh, of our Christian situations is people, for example, who have never intended to do what Jesus said. That's not what, that was not a part of the deal. Their deficiency, their vision, now the vision was, I'm a sinner. Christ suffered my consequences. God will let me in heaven. It's a very thin vision. Hmm. Questions like, would you like it if you got there, don't come up. It's not a kingdom vision. No, it's not. And uh, the vision of God now, having a kingdom, inviting us to be a part of it by following Christ in everything that we do, um, that's where then you go to means. What are the means of this? Well, you mentioned there's God's side, there's the Word, the Spirit, the angels, the fellowship of believers, all kinds of things like that. And then there's our side, which is, among other things, to decide to do what Jesus said, uh, trust him, learn how to live in the kingdom of God. And then that involves things uh, that we do to enable ourselves to do what we can't do by direct effort. Those are disciplines or means. Hmm. And things like scripture memorization, fasting, and so right. on are designed to do that. It seems as if um, in my line of ministry to broken Christian leaders that I encounter a lot of people that are so broken, either by virtue of their own sin or having been sinned against or mm-hmm. wounded, yes. that their vision is crushed and they, no. they can't even see in front of them. Yeah. Where do we yeah. start with people that are deeply broken? Yeah, you tell them to stop trying. Hmm. Uh, and now in order to help them, then you have, you have to try to uh, give them the vision of God. Hmm. And, of course, they've read the Bible and they've done all sorts of things, but they perhaps have not spent any time sitting in the presence of God. Hmm. I remember a man that uh, picked me up at the airport in St. Louis and took me somewhere over in Illinois telling me as we drove how his life and ministry and family had been saved by the fact that he began to go into his sanctuary 
and sit in the front bench for hours. Hmm. Now, again, I don't, I'm sure the Lord led him and all that. He didn't have any theory. You don't really have to have a theory. But you have to find a way of acknowledging God. And once you do that, then you will be able to stop carrying the impossible burdens and your life will be sufficiently rich that you don't have to uh, have some sort of sexual thing or power thing or money thing. Um, And see, those things always happen out of a sense of terrible deficiency in my opinion, mm-hmm. whatever that's worth. Mm-hmm. They always happen. Was, and people get to saying, well, you know, I deserve it. I deserve it. I've uh, known of ministers who settled on some woman in their congregation and just went to her and told her that. That it was God's will. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, women often, or men, don't have enough sense to understand that whatever is God's will, that ain't it. So, because of the weakness of the teaching and fellowship and everything, then all these things start to happen, or the money thing, or the power thing. And uh, you, um, a person who is enslaved to something like that is acting out of deficiency. Their life is so impoverished. And they may have the idea that their life is impoverished because God has demanded that of them. And then all the crazy thinking about, well, what he owes me and what his will is for me, and so on gets going. It's just a hopeless mess. But it all comes out of the sense of deficiency, and that can only be remedied by bringing God before you adequately. Paul, uh, David, or the psalmist in Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. Hmm. I shall not be moved. Hmm. And that's the secret. Set the Lord always before you. But you've got to have the right Lord. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to defining the yeah. Lord as some object of our, our, no, our desire. Like, like, there's, out here in California, they have this little Western exterminator sign, which is, shows a man in a top hat with a hammer and a bug down there. And he's looking at that bug, ready to bring the hammer down. That's many people's image of God, huh. just like the little Western exterminator man. Huh. And, of course, that's not going to help you. As you quote Psalm 16, uh, just by way of immediate disclosure, there's something inside of me that's really drawn to everything you're saying. And I've begun to taste of some of these disciplines and the transformation that comes from there. That's good stuff. And then the other part. And the other part says, and I imagine this might be a voice that many people hear, it mm-hmm. can't be that simple. It can't be that simple. To just it, hold- Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is that simple, but then you have to do it. Right. 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 And doing it isn't simple. So, for example, learning, for example, to fast or spend time in solitude and what that, you, you go through quite a deal with that. And you're, you learn a lot about your body and how it has taken control of your mind and, uh, and then how your will has perhaps sold out to desire. And so what you discover is there's a lot of stuff there that and it takes a little time to work that through. 
and brings you right back to grace. Well, it brings you, grace you can count on. See, grace, the power of the word, and the Holy Spirit you can count on. If God is pleased or whatever, there may be an individual or two that you can also come to count on. That will help a lot. But the stuff that Bill was talking about, about coming out of hiding and revealing yourself and so on, mm. that that takes a little time, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have to find someone who's trustworthy and who knows how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is, it is very simple in conception, see, and then... But this is where we need to have a fellowship that is teaching and practicing these things. And that just helps wonderfully. And you look at how much is said in the New Testament about imitating your leaders, or Paul, or others, imitate me. Jesus. One of the greatest moments in my life was uh, reading the first section of the Imitation of Christ, Mm. where it is quoted from John's Gospel. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Hmm. Wow. So where I was coming from, I'd read that hundreds of times. Hmm. But it never occurred to me that you could actually do that. Hmm. <laughs> it, it strikes me that many people think that, that these are lofty, idealistic right. kinds of things to do and disciplines, right. but that... It's, it's just not doable. It's not practical. Well, actually, that's very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't mention any current authors by name because I don't want to give them a bad time, but you will find that often presented. Uh, the idea that you, you, your choice is uh, hopeless striving to do what Jesus said or brokenness. Mm. That's your only way to go. I've fallen into that trap. And what that misses is the way of growth through discipline. Mm. And I like to call it indirection, because when when you begin to deal with the things in your life, not by trying not to do them or do them, as the case may be, but by thinking about where they come from and changing that, then you find that suddenly things begin to work. Hmm. And that's the method I call indirection. Indirection. The uh, you know the the uh, if you try to do the Ten Commandments, you will never do them. But if you try to become the kind of person who does them, there's some hope. Hmm. You have to change the inner conditions of behavior if you want to change the behavior. The failure of the Pharisee is to just try to do the behavior. And as Jesus said, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And that's because they they want to behave, but they can't. And that's all they know. Yeah. And so the only recourse then is to fake it somehow. And that idea of of moving from the from the outside uh, compliance to the law or attempting to do that and the ceaseless striving to the interior mm-hmm. that's something that's a supernatural work. And that brings up this tension between grace and uh, our own effort. Yeah, well, it is a supernatural work, but if you don't do something, it won't happen. 
Like when Jesus says in, in John 15, without me you can do nothing, it's also true that if you do nothing, it will be without him. Hmm. So the question is, how do you go about it? Now, hmm. the first step here is to realize that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Hmm. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. Okay. So now, many people have trouble with this issue that you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. Um, because they think, well, if I, if I tried to do something, I, why should I fast? Why should I memorize scripture? I said, well, God wants you to, is that it? Uh, or is there something else going on here? See, disciplines are things that you can engage in to close with the grace and activity of God. Fasting? What are you doing when you're fasting? Well, you're aligning yourself with the reality of God to nourish you by his word. Now, can he do that without you fasting? Yeah, but the question is, how does it usually work? And one of the things that people fool themselves with is talking about things God can do. But what we need to do is realize what he usually does. Huh. And uh, so learning about things that make a difference, mm -hmm. you know. Um, one of my favorite quotes uh, is in Renovation of the Heart, and you start one of the chapters by saying, here's a, a strange but hopeful idea, that the amazing thing about the human being is that it is capable of restoration, and a restoration that's more magnificent because it's been ruined. Mm -hmm. that, that's something that I'd like you to unpack. The triumph of God in the ruined soul exposes both the greatness of the human being and the greatness of God uh, in a way that is greater than if we had never sinned. What I think of in relation to that quote is the idea that you get a more glorious picture of God's heart uh, after That's the crucifixion exactly right. and resurrection yes. and, and Jesus' ruin. Um, That's right. But you see, you also get a greater picture of the worth of the human. Mm. Mm. And that's, I'm sure that God was not taken by surprise by sin. Uh, I'm sure that if we had not sinned, perhaps he would have found a way to work out the maximum revelation of his glory in human beings. But it didn't work that way. And in any case, uh, if you just think about human life in terms of innocence, you realize that innocence, while it is beautiful, is not the greatest thing you could imagine. Hmm. And uh, so that's why I say that. And um, I think we see it in smaller measure in the stories we like to tell ourselves in fiction and real life about the, oh, the struggles that people overcome. The beauty of redemption. Beauty of redemption. And uh, actually, uh, 
danger, failure, success is a kind of structure of the drama of human life that you get in the worst of television series and the greatest of novels. So. Final question. What, what resources, books, readings have you found helpful in the last couple of years in your own living in kingdom reality with God? Well, if you're referring to books that have appeared in the last couple of years, I wouldn't Or, or books from centuries ago. No, uh, I mean, there are very few books that I recommend to everyone. One is The Imitation of Christ. It's an absolutely indispensable book for a person who is trying to engage in... Uh, personal growth and Christ-likeness as well as ministry to others. Now, it, it's not the Bible and it has some things in it that uh, uh, various uh, Protestants have expurgated like John Wesley published a pattern a version of it called The Christian's Pattern. But it's a great, great book. And another one I would mention is uh, William Law's serious call to a devout and holy life. Hmm. Uh, it is, uh, again, I mean, you. these are books that, if you're not committed to having your life change, you'll never read. Mm-hmm. Uh, a slightly more uh, exciting one is Finney's Revival Lectures. Now they'll set your hair on fire. <laughs> but we'll take some work. Come out different. Yeah. And that'll be worth it. Right. And and actually, I mean, there's just a whole lot of literature. I mean, the Wesleys, their hymns and their writings and all of that, they were certainly... Uh, I have profited immensely from Wesley. Mm-hmm. And, and people like uh, Richard Foster and others have, have done a lot of work in trying to revive some of those authors from yes, centuries ago. They have indeed. I would like to thank you for your time, uh, for your vocation, and for your, your presence here today. So you're, bless you, Dr. Dallas Willer. Thank you. I accept it. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com